From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. As a former Department of Justice official, I wanted to be part of a credible effort that was genuinely interested in getting the truth about what happened. And Chairman Thompson made clear from the beginning that there was no preordained outcome or, or no narrative that we were trying to corroborate, but rather an open-ended, genuine inquiry for the truth. That's Tim Hafey. Until just a few weeks ago, he was the chief investigative counsel for the House January 6th committee. That means that he led the sprawling 18-month investigation into the insurrection at the Capitol. And he helped craft the final report that recommended criminal charges against former President Trump. Tim and I served together in the Justice Department under President Obama. He was U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Virginia when I was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Tim joins me this week for an exclusive conversation about the House January 6th investigation. We discuss the process of interviewing witnesses, the strategy behind the hearings, and the relationship between the committee and DOJ. Plus, what happens next now that the committee has issued its final report? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Christy, who writes, If we assume Biden will run, how can Garland indict Trump, Biden's opponent, and not appear to politically help his boss? Credit to Ellie Honig Cafe Post. Hashtag AskPreet. Congrats on your podcast win. Thanks, Christy, for the question and for the congrats. Well, you have crystallized perfectly the political dilemma that lots of people have been talking about. My view, even though the facts are still developing with respect to the Biden documents, is that there's a significant difference, most importantly, with respect to willfulness, with respect to the handling of the documents. And I think some will certainly believe that there's an indictment of Trump and not Biden, no matter what the facts show, no matter how honestly and deliberately the decision was made, that it is unfair and it's politically motivated and there's not a whole lot you can do about that. But I think that's why Garland appointed two separate and independent, or I guess mostly independent, special counsels, one for the documents relating to Mar-a-Lago and the other for the documents relating to Joe Biden, because in his mind, he understands, whether he will say so forthrightly or not, that there is this political conundrum. 
And there will be people who will doubt the independence of the decision-making. And in his mind, and I think for purposes of assuaging people's doubts about the good faith and independence of the decision-making with respect to Biden and to Trump, and to ensure there's not a double standard, he appointed these two men. The problem is manifold, however, because for a lot of people, their minds are made up, both as to the guilt of Trump and Biden or the innocence of Trump and Biden. And they won't abide any decision if they both don't meet the same outcome, either no one indicted or both of them indicted. So as a political matter, it's a bit of an impossible situation, and I don't envy the role that the attorney general has. But as a rule of law matter, you have to put that aside. The special counsels in particular have to put that aside. Look at the cases on their own facts, on their own merits. Look at the evidence you have. Look at the testimony you get. Look at the nature of the documents. Follow the timeline and assess it all. And in the totality of circumstances, compare the matter to other cases that have been brought criminally versus cases that haven't been brought criminally and make your best independent good faith assessment of whether your matter, whether it's the Biden matter or the Trump matter, falls within the category of cases that have been charged previously or not charged previously. That's easier said than done, uh, given all the turmoil in the air and the politicization of this. But that's how it should be done. That's, I think, the aspiration that Merrick Garland has for each of the special counsels. The problem, though, in the end is Garland ultimately, even though he's delegated these responsibilities, he ultimately, as a practical matter, is the one making the final decision. Because the special counsels are not independent counsels. They still answer to Merrick Garland. They still will make a recommendation to Merrick Garland. He can overrule them, even though he has to make a report and disclosure of that to Congress. But notwithstanding the fact that he's appointed two people with some remove from the daily hierarchy of the Justice Department, at the end of the day, it's Garland's decision. And I don't envy him. One more point that I think we all know by now, but just bears repeating, the difference also between the position of Donald Trump and the position of Joe Biden is Joe Biden now has the benefit that Trump had for many years during the Mueller investigation of being the sitting commander in chief and per a continuing and existing OLC, Office of Legal Counsel policy and conclusion, a sitting president cannot be prosecuted. So at best, even if there's a decision about Biden having broken the law by the special counsel, and even if that decision was agreed with by Merrick Garland, no such prosecution could happen until Biden leaves office. And if he runs again and wins again, then there's a real question about whether he would ever be prosecuted, even if, and this is, a, I think, uphill battle, even if it was found that a statute was violated. This question comes in an email from Robert who asks, what are your thoughts on why DOJ chose not to send FBI agents to search President Biden's home for classified documents? Well, this is a reference to an article in the last couple of days from the Wall Street Journal that reports, quote, the Justice Department considered having FBI agents monitor a search by President Biden's lawyers for classified documents at his homes, but decided against it, both to avoid complicating later stages of the investigation and because Mr. Biden's attorneys had quickly turned over a first batch and were cooperating, according to people familiar with the matter, end quote. I'd love to know who those people familiar with the matter are and how this came out, but I guess we're not going to learn that because we never do with respect to press reports of this nature. So I think the answer is in that lead paragraph of the Wall Street Journal, and whether you agree with the assessment or not, and whether people will criticize the assessment or not. I think it is the case that the DOJ decided 
based on an appearance of and evidence of cooperativeness and promptness on the part of the president's lawyers, that there was no need to have FBI accompaniment to other locations where there may or may not be documents with classified markings. By the way, to the extent people say that's different from what happened to Donald Trump, it's not. The FBI involvement in the execution of a search in the Mar-a-Lago documents matter happened many, many months into an ongoing back and forth between the archives and the Justice Department and the Trump lawyers and the Trump team. They did not take aggressive action for a while. So I think the argument could be made, given what looks like seemingly good faith cooperation, there's no reason to be heavy handed. There's another reason provided in the article itself, at least it's a speculative reason why the FBI didn't get involved was, quote, one reason not to involve the FBI at an early stage, that way the Justice Department would preserve the ability to take a tougher line, including executing a future search warrant if negotiations ever turned hostile, current and former law enforcement officials said. I guess that's, that's possible, that you don't ratchet up to the highest level of aggressiveness at the outset when you've not been provoked to do so. I think the bottom line is we'll have to see how this unfolds. We'll have to see how thorough a search is done. If Joe Biden's team makes certifications that everything was turned over uh, or balks at turning things over, but then classified documents are later found, that's a problem. And then you have to get into the question of willfulness and who is responsible and why such representations were made and why documents were not turned over when the problem came to light uh, in the first instance back in November. All of that, by the way, happened in the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents case. We have not seen that yet happen in the Biden case. So I think it was in the discretion of the FBI to not accompany the president's lawyers. And you see that that's the product of a back and forth in a negotiation between the parties. As the Wall Street Journal article points out, quote, the two sides agreed that Mr. Biden's personal attorneys would inspect the homes, notify the Justice Department as soon as they identified any other potentially classified records, and arrange for law enforcement authorities to take them, end quote. So I imagine that the nature of the conversations, the openness of the conversations and negotiations were such that the FBI choose to exercise its discretion not to ask to accompany, and I respect that. This question comes in an email from Reno, who asks, what do you make of the news that the Supreme Court investigators looking into the Dobbs leak have narrowed their search down to a few suspects? How do you think they've gone about the investigation? Could the culprit face any legal action? So this is kind of interesting. It's another Wall Street Journal scoop from the last week that reports that the investigation being conducted at the Supreme Court of who leaked an early version of the Dobbs opinion overturning Roe v. Wade had been, quote, narrowed to a small number of suspects, including law clerks, end quote. Now, something about this reporting actually raises a lot of questions, and it's not 100% clear from the phrasing in the article, but it sounds like it's saying that it's a small number of suspects. We don't know if that means three, four, nine. I don't know what a small number of suspects means. And when it says including law clerks, does that mean there are people who are not law clerks? Because I think that was the prevailing assumption and speculation at the time of the leak that it was a law clerk for one of the justices. Does that small number of suspects include uh, people who work in tech? Does it include assistants and, st and staff? Or does it possibly, and this is a somewhat far-fetched theory, but it's one that some people have advanced, is one of the suspects a Supreme Court justice? There are reasons why that seems crazy, but there are also reasons that people could provide why that maybe is not so crazy. I think what's also interesting is that the article points out that the Supreme Court got outside help. As the article says, quote, with its own police having little experience in complex investigations, the court brought in assistance from outside government investigators, 
people familiar with the matter said there's those same people familiar with the matter. They know a lot of stuff about a lot of things on a wide range of topics, it seems. People familiar with the matter. It's also interesting that the story points out that the narrowing of the suspects to this small number happened some months ago, back in the summer. And additional months have gone by, and it doesn't sound like there's been a further narrowing, or maybe further reporting will say it's narrowed even further, but we don't have that yet. It's also interesting to see, according to this article, the approach taken in questioning potential suspects. The article says the interviews were sometimes short and superficial, consisting of a handful of questions such as, did you do it? Do you know anyone who had a reason to do it? Which is a direct question. Some might say not particularly designed to elicit a truthful answer if it was being asked of the person who was actually the perpetrator. The bottom line is they appear to be serious. It appears to be ongoing. I'm not sure they'll ever find the actual final culprit. And when you ask the question, could the culprit face any legal action? I'm still not aware of what criminal statute had been violated. It was obviously a breach of the trust. It was a breach of protocol. It was a breach of etiquette. It was unprecedented. But the article itself points out that it might not necessarily be unlawful. I think if the person continues to be in the employ of the Supreme Court, they would face dismissal. But it could be someone who is no longer at the court, and I'm not sure what action could be taken. I guess maybe there's an argument that it was a violation of the oath, maybe as a violation of some principle of ethics or code of ethics uh, as a professional member of the bar. But as far as criminal sanction, I don't currently see it, and I haven't seen anyone credibly propose what the crime would be. But if I'm wrong, you should write to us. We'll be right back with my conversation with Tim Hafey. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own. 
and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Tim Hafey is a former prosecutor who has held a number of significant roles, from U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Virginia to General Counsel at the University of Virginia. Most recently, Tim served as the Chief Investigator for the House January 6th Select Committee. Tim Hafey, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Preet. It's good to be here. So um, I've been excited to have you. We've all been excited to have you. As people know from the introduction, you and I were colleagues, U.S. attorneys, at the same time in the Obama administration. Yes. Thank you for all your work, your continued public service. Uh, glad to see someone like you playing the role that you had. So there's a lot to get into. And, you know, I think um, let's start from the beginning. How the hell did you get involved in this committee's work? So I, after I left the U.S. attorney job a few years ago, I was in private practice and I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, which I think you know, I was the U.S. attorney here in the Western District of Virginia. And we had a horrific event here in 2017, August of 2017, a spasm of violence and a mass demonstration. And the city of Charlottesville hired me and my then law firm to do an independent review of how the city handled uh, anticipated and then managed that event. And I issued a lengthy report sort of assessing the ways in which my client, the city, had mismanaged that event, had not fully prepared, had not assessed intelligence, had not communicated with the public, resulting in violence and death in Charlottesville. And then January 6th happened. And, you know, unfortunately, similar lack of preparation, similar Violence uh, and death occurred, and in the wake of that, there was a desire to do an assessment. You know, and I had, you know, lawyers are reluctant experts, Preet, as you know, and I'd sort of become, yeah, sort of an expert in political violence and mass demonstrations and how they're managed. And a good friend of mine from law school is Sean Patrick Maloney, who's a congressman from was a congressman from New York, and he reached out and connected me with the speaker and her team as they were putting together staff for the select committee. And since I had you know, done something sort of like this before, and I had some experience in the Justice Department, they hired me to be the chief investigative counsel. And at what point was that? Was that after the committee was constituted or while it was anticipated that it would be constituted? Yeah, right in the beginning. It was the summer of 2021. I think the committee was approved and established in June, and this was in August. So it was very soon after the committee uh, sort of got up and running. I was the third or fourth staff person that, uh, that was hired. And what was your role supposed to be? Uh, I was supposed to be the chief investigative counsel, which meant that I would essentially supervise the day-to-day work of the investigation. And that's true to form what what it was. For the next 18 months, I was the sort of in charge overall, working with the other staff leadership and the members of the, the factual investigation of the select committee. So describe for folks over the course of the committee's work how the staff was organized and how many people there were you know, we watched the hearings on television. We only got to see the members for the most part. I saw you a few times on some of the video clips, taking some of those yeah. depositions yeah. and doing some of those interviews. But describe for folks how big the infrastructure was behind the committee. Yeah, we had about 55 or 60 staff on the select committee. The investigative staff was largely lawyers. It was largely former prosecutors, people 
with whom you and I worked for years, who were used to asking questions, used to reviewing documents, used to assessing credibility. The scope of the select committee was pretty broad. It was evaluating the facts and circumstances that gave rise to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And that included law enforcement and military preparation. It included organization and financing of the rally. And it included the broader context of of how it came about. So we organized it, Preet, into five separate investigative teams, and we, and we sort of color-coded them. Right. Um, we had the red and the blue team, and those two were sort of either side of the fence at the Capitol. The red team was focused on the rioters themselves, who they were, how they got there, how much coordination they had, you know, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, that sort of thing. And the blue team was focused on law enforcement and military. You know, how much advance intel did they have? How did they actually manage the event? Zooming out from that, we had the gold team, which was really focused on the election issues, the stop the steal movement and the fake electors, pressure on the vice president, uh, all of the context of the, the, you know, the, the election fraud, false narrative. And then the purple team was about domestic violent extremism. This was the latest event in a, in a whole series that we've seen around the country of domestic violent extremists coming together for particular reasons. And the purple team focused on that. And then finally, the green team was was the money team. They were focused on funding streams, identifying who paid for what. And then each of those teams had a senior investigative counsel, pretty seasoned lawyer, investigator, and then additional people, some lawyers, some subject matter experts, some sort of researchers, professional staff members. And all of them would coordinate their work and report to me and ultimately through me to the members as we proceeded with the investigation. All right. So I got to ask you, Tim, who picked the colors? That was a joint effort, Preet, as all of it was. Because <laughs> there's some colors missing. It was hard to get the colors right. Uh, the, the way it works in Congress, because there's no you know pink this, team. No pink team. Uh, you know, we propose things and then the members decide. So, so this was a staff. I think you should have had at least an orange team. Yeah, there was, there was a team that was focused on malign foreign influence that started to call themselves the orange team. <laughs> so people just sort of ran with the color theme on their own. When you began this whole endeavor, did you and the committee understand yourselves to be on a clock? What was the time period within which you, you thought you had to work? Well, we knew we absolutely felt very motivated by a clock. And we knew that we had until the end of the Congress, right? The select committees, the legislation that created it made clear that it, the select committee would expire at the end of this Congress. Now, there was certainly a chance that it could be extended, but there was a decent chance that the Democrats would lose control of the House, which ultimately did happen. And given that uncertainty, we couldn't count on continuing beyond right. the end of the Congress. And that meant that we were very focused on the end of 2022 as our hard stop deadline. So when you know you have that clock, and it seems like a long time in some ways, but knowing the massive effort that it was going to need and the hundreds and hundreds of people to be interviewed and thousands of, of documents, millions of documents, communications, were, were you a little bit overwhelmed at the, at the clock? Yes, absolutely. We felt it. All the time, the the mass of information that we were fortunate enough to receive, the volume of it, the pace of our work, uh, it was strenuous. And there were times, yes, where we would get a huge production from a particular government agency or from an individual, and it took kind of all hands on to to go through that stuff and prepare for an interview. And now that was also yeah. really helpful, frankly, to have a deadline. Look, you know, in any investigation, you can try to cross every T and dot every I and talk to every witness. And that's impossible. So in some ways, it was frankly our friend that we said, hey, look, we had to prioritize because we had a deadline. 
without that, we could, we could be at this for years and years and still be finding new information. Right. So how did you prioritize? Did you literally sit down and create a document with a timeline uh, setting forth who you're going to interview when? Did you just start serving subpoenas immediately? How did you go about that? Yeah, every team at the beginning had an investigative plan and a sort of aspirational calendar as to sources of information and, and the order in which they wanted to proceed to get that information. And then we just sort of had to change on the fly. There were people that said no, that they didn't want to come in and talk to us, believe it or not. And that required some adjustment in us trying to find other sources of information if that one wasn't available. And then sometimes we got suddenly lucky with a new piece of information that prompted a new investigative angle and we had to change the plan. Mm -hmm. So there was direction at all times and there was a sense of sequence, but it was dictated often by events, either fortuitous receipt of information or having to find ways around blockage when we were reaching out for particular sources. Do you get any particular marching orders or statement of mission from the chair or vice chair of the select committee in doing your work? Yes. The very first conversation I ever had with Chairman Thompson, and this was consistent throughout, was we want to conduct a credible fact-based investigation Go follow the facts wherever they lead. And that was important to me as a former Department of Justice official. I wanted to be part of a credible effort that was genuinely interested in getting the truth about what happened. And Chairman Thompson made clear from the beginning that there was no preordained outcome or, or no narrative that we were trying to corroborate, but rather an open-ended genuine inquiry for the truth. And I took that seriously, and that's how we approached the work. All of the members, that was Chairman Thompson's direction, but the vice chair, all the other members continually repeated that throughout our process. Now, you were a former U.S. attorney. I'm a former U.S. attorney. Before I became U.S. attorney, I worked on a much smaller and less significant congressional investigation, but I, I've done both, just like you have done both. Can you describe for folks how you thought about the congressional investigation, given that the end product was not going to be an indictment or a declination uh, to charge, and how you thought about it in terms of evidence collection, uh, who you talked to, the way you asked questions, whether you could do things differently because you didn't have to worry about the rules of evidence yeah. and admissibility. Just How did you think about all that? Yeah, it's a good question. There are a lot of differences, but essentially fact-gathering is fact-gathering. So most of the experience that I brought with me from my time as an assistant U.S. attorney and as a U.S. attorney was really portable. You know, it, you know, assessing who is credible, asking questions that follow up on and incorporate the answer to the previous question. Those basic skills pre were the same in a congressional investigation, criminal investigation, whatever, you know, a deposition in a civil litigation. There are some, though, significant differences, uh, one of which is that in this one, in a congressional investigation, particularly one of this profile, absolutely everything we did was really carefully scrutinized. So ideally, in a criminal investigation, you know, you're operating largely in secret and you have a secret grand jury process and you can take investigative steps without knowing that that will immediately be reported and that everyone on the outside will be following the progress of your investigation closely. That was not the case here. Everything we did was because of reporting, because of interest. Interest level in our work was kind of immediately made public. Even if we didn't ever officially say anything, the fact that we had a certain witness in, the fact that we had approached a certain witness, 
that would often get reported. And that made it very difficult because there were a lot of people that said, hey, if I talk to you, it's going to be immediately on MSNBC or it's going to be in Politico that I came in and talked to the committee. And that, you know, has ramifications for me. And therefore, I really, you know, as much as I'm rooting for you guys, I, I can't really help you. So that the level of interest and scrutiny in which this occurred was very, very different. And then the other big thing that's different, as you said, is that, look, we were not trying to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. We therefore were able to elicit a lot of hearsay and opinion and speculation. And in some ways that made the interviews more conversational. And we were able to develop, you know, thoughts and theories and ideas that we knew would never be admissible in court, but were helpful to guide the investigation from people who were personally involved. So in that sense, it was a more open-ended inquiry, just sort of a broad exploration of what occurred as opposed to, hey, we're trying to establish the elements of this particular statute and therefore we're asking questions to develop admissible evidence. Now, you were doing your inquiry and I don't know at what point the Department of Justice started its inquiry that overlapped with yours, but obviously they were investigating January 6th. Right. As soon as January 6th. Did you in your investigation and conducting these interviews and the other members of the staff Think about how what you were doing might impact or countermand or in any other way affect a DOJ investigation and DOJ interviews of the same people. We absolutely did. And we had a lot of discussion with the Department of Justice about that. We were interviewing a lot of the same people that they were interviewing. It started really with rioters themselves. So as I said, we had a red team that was really focused on who was in the crowd how much were they working together? And that really intersected directly with the early cases that the department was bringing against people that had breached the barrier of the Capitol. And they were very concerned uh, that we were going to generate information that would impact, and it could be negatively impact, their cases. Like if we interviewed Witness X, but Witness X had actually said, already been interviewed by the FBI and was counted on as a witness for DOJ and said anything inconsistent to us, then arguably that is impeaching and the department would want. So they preferred that we not talk to anyone that they had talked to. They weren't going to share with us information about who they talked to. Well, how is that going to work? It's going to be very difficult without <laughs> them giving us information. So we, we Right, but would, I mean, how is it going to work if, the, if you had acquiesced in their insistence that you not talk to anybody they had talked to? Or maybe um, you don't have to comment on this if you don't want. They had interviewed so few people that it wouldn't have affected your investigation overly? You know, they were focused first and foremost on what I'll call the sort of blue-collar aspect of this, right? The the people that were literally breaking windows and destroying property at the Capitol. We were focused pretty much right away on the sort of white-collar aspect of this. Yeah. The political coup, all of the political machinations that went into the efforts to overturn the election. So, so in some ways we were sort of in parallel lanes. Like they, they were very nervous about us interviewing people that were charged defendants. So we, we established a process by which we would say to them, we're interested in talking to the, you know, the following charged defendants. So if they were charged, DOJ already had, you know, a case against them. We would notify them and they, to a person would say, we don't want you to interview that person. And we largely accommodated that. Uh, But not always. There were times where we did reach out to people because they wanted to. Some of these defendants had a very strong interest to to cooperate with us because they wanted to get as much credit as they could when they were sentenced. So if defendant X had pled guilty to trespass at the Capitol or obstruction of an official proceeding, he wanted to be able to tell the judge, hey, not only did I talk to the FBI and turn in 
these people that were next to me when I did this, but I also talked to the J6 committee and I am a changed person and I am, you should have leniency on me because I have been completely transparent. So, so there was an incentive where they were aligned with us and the DOJ was sometimes reluctant. We had a very professionally courteous and communicative relationship, well, communicative one way with us communicating with them. They were not very communicative. Professionally courteous. Yeah. That, that sounds like a euphemism. Well, it, it, because they just couldn't, <laughs> they weren't going to ever share information with us. Yeah. They, they do not. But you don't blame share. them. You don't blame no. them for that. We, you would have done that. the same. Exactly. I, I knew that going in, but it was not a two-way street. It, it was a one-way street. Right. But does it strike you as odd? So you have these two classes of potential witnesses, right? The blue collars, you refer to them, and the white collar, mm-hmm. you, you know, pe- people at the Justice Department, at the White House, in Trump's orbit. They were really concerned about the first category because they were interviewing those people and prosecuting those people. Is it odd a little bit that they weren't worried about the second category? Because arguably they should have been thinking about them maybe at a later phase. Yeah. And you still are going to have the problem of duplicative testimony, perhaps maybe even a more, in a more harmful way with respect to a higher level prosecution. Can you explain that? Do you think at that point where you were having these discussions, the department wasn't really thinking about talking to and interviewing the second category of person? Yeah, I- uh, this is all speculation. Yeah. It was, but it seemed to us that they were not very focused or focused at all on the white collar aspect of this until well into our work. And I don't know if that is a resource issue, if that is a prioritization issue, if, if there was some reluctance at the department to investigate something that seemed political because the attorney general is so adamant that politics doesn't govern the department's work, which again, I respect and and appreciate. But I think we were ahead of them, candidly, early. Oh, I think you definitely were. Yeah. And when you say you're not sure why they developed that interest when they developed it, I'll tell you one theory. (laughs) Yeah. And I've said this on the podcast before. It's because of your committee's work. Because of us, yeah. Because of you. Do you you buy into that? Yeah, I I absolutely do. Look, I, I think, as I said before, everything we did was under and getting a lot of attention and there was a lot of scrutiny. So when we would interview Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff, everyone knew he was in. It was obvious that we were getting into areas where the political process was misused to try to overturn the results of the election that got a lot of attention. And then when we started our hearings, obviously when we started telling pieces of the story, there's no doubt that that motivated the Department of Justice. I think it made clear uh, the reporting about what we were doing, and then as we started presenting some of our findings, that there's real potential criminal misconduct here and that they cannot limit their inquiry to the blue collar, you know, right. breaking windows at the Capitol. They have to look at the political coup as well. And we ultimately, you know, as you know, referred some specific people yeah. and yeah, facts and criminal we're statutes. Definitely yeah. talk about that. But at the time, just jumping ahead a little bit, since we're on the topic, when the Department of Justice started finally to look like they were wanting to interview some of the same people, you know, the the folks who were involved in the coup who were not breaking windows. At that point, did you get any feeling from the department that they kind of regretted that you had done all these interviews already? Yes, as the answer. And they wanted access to our interviews that we'd already done. So the, the tables were turned, right? At first, we wanted information that they had gotten, that the Bureau had gotten about all the sort of Proud Boy Oath Keeper window breakers. Then we sort of jumped ahead of them when it came to the fake electors and the use of the misuse of the Justice Department and the pressure on the vice president and state legislators. They then, when they started really focusing on those white collar issues, they wanted to get information from us. 
Um, so we had all this stuff, right? These these interview transcripts of Mark Short and Pat Cipollone and all of these important witnesses who are personally involved and observed this stuff up close. And they hadn't talked to them yet. And they knew that as they proceeded down that path, they would be made smarter uh, and would sort of have a advantage if they could take, if they could read what those witnesses had said to us. So they then made a really fulsome request for all of our information before we had finished our investigation. So why didn't you turn all that stuff over immediately when asked? Well, because we were still going. I mean, we had not finished our investigation. And when you turn something over to the Justice Department, there's a chance that it will have to go to a criminal defendant. It will have to be disclosed publicly. And until we were finished with our investigation, we wanted to maintain its integrity and not have information out in the public domain that would potentially impact the cooperation of other witnesses. We knew that eventually all of this was going to be made public, that we were on a clock, as we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. and that it was just a matter of when and not if. It was sort of a sequencing issue. That if they had to go interview Mark Short or Pat Cipollone before they read our transcript, they were going to get it eventually. So the facts were all going to come out. And until we were done, until we had finished gathering and presenting our findings, uh, the committee decided it was not prepared to share that information because of fear that it would right. implicate the ongoing direction of the investigation. Right. If you can say, who was the principal person on the select committee staff? who was dealing with and negotiating with DOJ? Was it was it you yeah. or someone else or a combination of folks? Well, it was me in combination with the other staff leadership. But it, since I had had a lot of experience with the department before having been a U.S. attorney, I was sort of the yeah. point person. And you know these folks. These folks are friends of ours. Exactly right. The current leadership of the department, um, yeah. all the way up to the attorney general, are people that I have known professionally. And, and that that actually, you know, there was, there was a level of good faith yeah. in terms of the discussions as a result of those relationships. But when those discussions are going on with respect to the people who had been in government and around Trump, um, I'm going to borrow your phrase again. Did the relationship remain professionally courteous? Yeah, it did. They were frustrated that we weren't more prepared earlier to share information with them. And it was difficult to explain to them, look, you're going to get it. It's just a question of when. They wanted it yesterday. And we said, well, no, you'll get it tomorrow. And, you know, that was a disagreement that I think we, we never really resolved until we finished the investigation. I think our work will really matter to the department. I, I do think there's a lot in there that um, that they will use successfully as they continue to, that Jack Smith and his team evaluates this. And we always knew that bottom line, they were going to get it. Again, it was just a question of sequencing. Now, putting on your DOJ hat for a moment, um, I wonder if you agree with something that I've said before. And that is because the department has a different function and mission to either build cases or decline to bring a case that they couldn't rely or can't rely solely on the interviews that you folks did, that they, in all likelihood, have to re-interview everybody that you did mm-hmm. to the extent they bear on a particular criminal case you're going to bring. Do you agree with that? I, I do. I absolutely do. I, I think they wanted our material to inform their own subsequent fact-gathering. So let's say they scheduled an interview with Pat Cipollone. They would be much, much smarter in approaching that interview by knowing what he had said to us. Yeah. So they are, you're exactly right, Preet. They, they, so they do can get have some a, consistent, because yeah. so, so people understand, and we've talked about this before, but inconsistent statements by witnesses who have been asked questions in multiple forums and in different times, that's the way to lose a case at trial. Absolutely, exactly. So they want to know what Cipollone had said previously to inform what questions to ask him, whether to ask him the same questions, 
how to shape, first of all, just to learn what he knows, right? Like they're, they're trying to just, just investigate open-mindedly, figure out what happened. But then when they put him on the record in their grand jury process, which of course, as you said, they're going to do their own, make their own record and not rely exclusively on ours. That's just a more educated process when they have access to right. the work that the select committee had, had done before. Let's do a quick tale of the tape. Mm-hmm. Do you know off the top of your head how many people the committee interviewed how many documents were reviewed, that kind of thing? Sure. We interviewed between eleven and 1,200 people. Those were not all on-the-record interviews. We had about four, between four and 500 that were actually transcribed, either in a deposition where the witness is under oath or a transcribed interview where the witness is, is transcribed but is not under oath. We had over a million documents, and those came from lots of different government agencies, private companies, subpoenas, and then stuff that individuals gave us. All of that was assessed, you know, manually. Those interviews were all taken by by select committee staff, and every single piece of paper that we received, every document, electronic or or physical, was reviewed by select committee staff. So it was a massive amount of information coming into the top of this funnel, and then out the bottom came our report. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Tim Hafey after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I want to talk about the hearings. They were um, well done. They were really great. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they were great, I thought, was they were not overly long. They were pretty streamlined. Um, audiovisual effects were terrific. It's been reported, and I think understood, that people who are expert in television production uh, were involved. Yeah. Anything about that, the involvement of that kind of professional, offend any of your sensibilities from the department? You know, not really. I got to say, look, when I, before I started this job, I read the 9-11 Commission report. And going into this, uh, we all sort of looked at the 9-11 Commission is kind of the gold standard of, of you know, a, a sober effort, fact-based, that looks at a horrific tragedy and tries to make sense of it. But look, we, we realized pretty early that America is very different now than it was 20 years ago in terms of how information is disseminated, processed, and understood by people in this country, right? If we just put forth a written volume like the 9-11 Commission report, it wouldn't have near the same impact today as it did 20 years ago. Because again, in the age of social media and, and the way in which our news is delivered, 
it has to be done more visually. So also, we have no attention span anymore. Well, that's right. <laughs> and we, we as Americans have zero attention span. Certainly shorter than we had before. And, and look, our members. This is I give the members of the committee credit here. They knew that our hearings, in some ways, were going to be really crucial in terms of educating the public about what happened. And I remember Zoe Lofgren, one of the members of the committee, said, "Are we videotaping uh, all of our interviews?" And this was right in the beginning. And, and we had done a few early ones that we had not videotaped. And I think we we said, oh, well, no, ma'am, we're not yet. But and she said, well, we should. And she was right because we pretty much, even before the end of 2021, started recording all yeah. of the interviews so that we could use portions. I mean, it was mindful that we were going yeah. to no, use No, I think that was very things. smart. I think that was I very agree. wise. And then when we hired, the committee hired James Goldston, who is a, the former president of ABC News. He's produced Nightline for years. He and his team collaborating with investigative counsel, right? So lawyers saying, hey, here's what I think is important. And TV people saying, here's what I think really resonates or, or, or these are the clips or the moments that I think are really powerful. That collaboration is what informed the presentation at the hearings. And, you know, I, people say, well, there's no cross-examination and it was one-sided. And it was not really a hearing in the classic sense of a congressional hearing. It was more of a presentation of our findings. And look, we were pretty harshly cross-examining certain witnesses ourselves just to give the process integrity right. on the record. But you didn't show that. that you didn't we did show. not. That's right. Well, sometimes we did. I mean, we did show some yeah. exchanges of some sharp questioning where we pushed back against some people or we tried to push against privilege lines. But again, the, the point of the hearings was not a like a trial where there are sort of two sides presented. It was a presentation of our findings. And I think they were intellectually honest. I think they were consistent with what we were finding. I don't think they were misleading. We weren't you know, hiding Brady information or exculpatory stuff in any way. It, they were previews of chapters of what we were learning, what we were finding, and all of which we knew at some point the doors would be thrown open. All of the interviews, all of the documents would be made public. And was confident during the hearings that what we were presenting in the hearings, when all the information came out, was going to be, you know, fair and, and objective and corroborated. I want to ask you a question or a version of a question that I got a lot about the committee's work, and and maybe you can explain it because you were in the mix. So people wanted to know how the committee decided which witnesses it would play hardball with, which witnesses they would accommodate and come up with parameters for which ones would get subpoenas, which ones would get subpoenas first, which ones would get subpoenas later if, if negotiations broke down. Can you describe a little bit about how the committee thought about approaching witnesses and why some differently from others? Yeah, that's a question that really depends on the witness. You know, we, we approached everyone in good faith with the open-minded hope that he or she would come forth and provide relevant information. And, and some people did, and they either themselves or through counsel were very forthcoming. And, and we worked with them on the, the time and the place and the manner of their provision of information. Other witnesses were not and didn't operate in good faith and would sort of string us along or would suggest that they would do things and then not. And that required more hardball tactics. You know, we have the power, the committee had the power to subpoena witnesses. We used it when necessary to compel uh, um, testimony or the production of documents. Some witnesses wanted that. Some witnesses needed the, the compulsion in order for them to be able to come forth, right? They, they felt like- They know, wanted they, to be compelled. They, wanted they, to be they didn't compelled. want to look like they were volunteering to say bad things about some other former colleagues. Exactly. That's right. So it was sort of a, I don't want to call it a dance because that implies that it was not sort of fair and straight up, but it, it, it was a negotiation with all of these witnesses. 
if they were willing to negotiate. And and in any negotiation, good faith earns good faith. And there were a lot of people that we accommodated because they were acting in good faith. And then there are other people that just weren't acting in good faith. And we weren't able to accommodate them and they got a subpoena. So people will ask the question, I don't know if you can answer it. Why no Mike Pence? Well, that was that's a product of negotiation. We spent a lot of time talking to the vice president's team and representatives. We had the core story of what happened with the vice president, his chief of staff, his chief counsel, his director of legislative affairs, his military advisory. And we had a lot of information about Vice President Pence, his position about the election, what he did on January 6th and the days therefore. So while getting information from him I still believe would have been really important and significant. It was not a factual hole that we needed to fill. He'd also yeah. made a lot of public statements about what happened. He wrote a book where he went into this. So there were alternate ways of getting it. We ultimately were not able to get him to come in uh, voluntarily. And the committee, since it was very late, decided not to serve a subpoena on him. But again, Preet, I think we had the core story of what uh, the vice president did. And, he, and the, frankly, the, the strength that he showed in doing the right thing on January 6th. But people listening to your answer will say, and I agree with that, that all makes sense to me, given the ultimate mission, the Department of Justice won't have the luxury of not talking to Mike Pence. But they'll say, well, it was very late in the game when the committee issued a subpoena to Donald Trump. Can you say anything about the thinking with respect to that timing? Yeah, you mean in investigations, you want to be prepared to talk to the principal once you have exhausted every other lead, right? You sort of work up at the chain uh, of culpability um, by talking to sort of people lesser in a conspiracy or lesser in an organization. And President Trump was the primary actor here. He was the person whose words and deeds were primarily responsible for the attack on the Capitol, as our report ultimately showed. And as a result of that, before reaching out to him to give him an opportunity to describe events from his perspective, we wanted to be prepared. We wanted to have done everything else that we could have in advance. And that's why the timing of a subpoena to the president, former president, was so late in the game. We knew going in that, if, A, it was unlikely that he would say, sure, I'll be there on Tuesday at 10 o'clock in your conference room, um, that he would likely resist. But we also wanted to, to, you know, to be prepared in the event that he was going to provide some testimony to the committee to, to have those questions be informed. Well, since we're on it then, can you explain or give some understanding to the public about why that subpoena was then withdrawn at the end? I think because because there was pending litigation and um, the, the committee was expiring. I, yeah. I don't. So what's the point? Yeah, exactly. It's, it was sort of a dead letter at that point, and I think <laughs> you don't just, want to you don't have to be litigating something that was moot. Exactly. There were some hearings that I mean, I think they were all riveting, but some, you know, more spectacular than others. And the one that I focused on, and I thought had the greatest impact, and, and you can rank them if you want, and you don't have to if you don't want to. But the hearing with Cassidy Hutchinson, former aide uh, to the chief of staff in the White House, there were some things that were interesting about that. One interesting aspect of that was it happened kind of suddenly, at least from the public's perspective. The House was in recess. So members of the committee had to come back Mm -hmm. and lock in that testimony. Can you explain what the urgency was and what the thinking was about that one and what you thought the impact of that particular hearing was? Yeah, I agree with you that it was impactful. It's hard to say which of them were more impactful than others. But so Ms. Hutchinson was a crucial witness. She came in, you know, kind of courageously and told us some things that others had not. And she also did it under great pressure. I I think as you've seen now in our our final report, you know, she was originally represented by a lawyer who 
was paid for by yeah you know by by folks in the Trump world and she felt pressure to say certain things or not say certain things as a result this was all sort of unfolding very rapidly just before uh, her hearing she had a new lawyer and she was saying some things that she had not previously said and we were concerned frankly about her safety and about um whether or not that pressure would be you know, brought to bear more directly. So for all those reasons, the decision was made you know, with a credible witness who's telling very important and relevant information under a great deal of pressure, experiencing potentially some, uh, some threats or some, certainly some extreme, generating extreme hostility. And for all those reasons, we need to, uh, to get this testimony out there quickly and can't wait you know, weeks and weeks and weeks or months and months. Um, and that's why the, the committee made the decision to, to put her on in her own hearing in a kind of relatively hastily arranged proceeding yeah. in June. Can you remind people what aspects of her testimony were so compelling and why they were probative of Donald Trump's state of mind in particular? Yeah. I mean, she was Mark Meadows' chief aide. Mark Meadows was the White House chief of staff and had thwarted the select committee subpoena. I mean, there's probably no one more centrally involved in both the day what happened on January 6th itself and the political stuff that happened in advance, then the chief of staff, we you know, to the president. And in lieu of him, his chief assistant, who was willing to talk to us about private conversations and things that she observed, and the things that, that she said were going on in the White House on January 6th, was really, really important. So for Ms. Hutchinson, it was both the the political strategy, you know, the objections filed by members of Congress, the outreach to state leg- to to state officials and state legislators. She was sort of in the room when all of that happened, leading up to January sixth, and then on that day, she was in the White House and she gave us a glimpse into what was happening and what was not happening inside of the White House as the riot was unfolding. Uh, and those were just crucial, crucial moments for us. And her testimony was so compelling because she gave us that kind of in the room where it happens perspective that we weren't getting from her boss or from some of the other senior people uh, at the White House. I think her testimony has been largely corroborated. She's a very courageous young person who raised her hand at great risk and personal sacrifice. And it, and it made a huge difference in the hearings and in our ultimate findings. I don't know if I have the timing right, but is there any correlation between the timing of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony and the uptick in activity from the Department of Justice? Yeah, they're roughly contemporaneous. I think once... Yeah. <laughs> so do you, is there once, causation there, Tim? Yeah. You know, look, she, the, the Department of Justice is primarily focused on evidence of the former president's intent. The whole ballgame, as Jack Smith and his team assesses, these facts. Well, is there evidence that he specifically intended to disrupt the official proceeding? Right? Did he act corruptly? They have to. They have to provide evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that he did. Cassidy Hutchinson provides some pretty detailed evidence of the president's intent. Right? Just just what she testified in terms of his very strong desire to go to the Capitol on January sixth to accompany the rioters as they move to the Capitol. Really, really probative about. His intent, what's on his mind, you know, his refusal to act during the riot, very directly relevant to his state of mind. So, so yes, her testimony speaks directly to the crucial issue, I think, that the department continues to evaluate, evidence of the president's state of mind. Well, I I guess we can jump ahead because you you opened the door to the fact that the committee made specific referrals and pointed to particular statutes that it says their evidence showed— were broken, violated. Yeah. yeah. 
Do you understand the argument that some people have made, and I've made a version of it, that it was not helpful to make a criminal referral? That the department's looking at this anyway. Jack Smith, who you referenced, is in charge as a special counsel. Maybe it'll look like it's putting undue political pressure on the department. Can you talk about the committee's thinking about that and, and respond to those objections? Yeah, I, this is an area where I have to be careful because yeah. I just am not at liberty to sort of get into the internal deliberations yeah, of but, the but, but a sense of why it went the way it went. Yeah, I, I can say, first of all, absolutely, I, I am mindful and the committee was mindful of the risk um, that, you know, is there a risk that by making a criminal referral, you're, you're sort of casting this in the light of the political? And for... Merrick Garland, who's sort of notoriously apolitical, is that sort of helping or that hurting the chances of a of a criminal indictment or, or helping it? There's no question that that was a legitimate concern. That was um, you know one of the things that that went into the committee's deliberation about whether or not to issue criminal referrals. I think the bottom line though was that there were a lot of reasons to do it. There were some reasons not to do it. Going back to what Chairman Thompson said, follow the facts wherever they lead. The facts led inexorably to violations of federal criminal law. And to not say that when we had developed such, in our view, overwhelming evidence of criminal conduct would have seemed incomplete. And and this was really a fact-driven decision that, you know, when we stuck when we took a step back and looked at the overall body of evidence that we had developed, it just seemed really clear that certain criminal statutes had been violated. And we wanted to lay that out in a very specific way and cite those particular statutes in our report. Uh, and that ultimately just sort of, again, following the facts where they led, that's where they led. And that's why they, that referral needed to be in the report. Do you think the, the, the department is a bit miffed about that or not? I don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't know that it really matters, to be honest, yeah. Pre. Like when I, when I hear the attorney general say, we're going to make a decision that based on the facts, um, I credit that. And I don't know that the committee's view is going to move the needle on that. I think they're going to look at the same facts that we've looked at. They're probably going to get some additional facts, right? They have some levers to pull that we don't, right? They may be able to overcome some privilege assertions that we could not right. in a grand jury because we, you know, we don't have that power. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, they, this, that just is, it's just one part of the body of evidence on which they will make a prosecutorial decision. I, I have trust and confidence in the people that are making that decision to yeah. make the right one. Is it your understanding that what the committee is conveying to the public by making the referral, that there's a lot of smoke here and it's worthy of a criminal investigation? Uh, or are they saying, you know, we think our evidence isn't covered enough to show that there's probable cause that these particular statutes have been violated? Or are they saying, if it were our judgment to make, we would charge the case and there re there's a reasonable prospect of proving it beyond a reasonable doubt or none of the above? Yeah, I, I think it's a sort of a combination of two and three there. I, I think if you just look at what we were able to gather, the interviews, the documents, that there is a triable case of obstruction of an official proceeding, a triable case of a 371 conspiracy. I think the department, as I said, has the ability to go further, to develop facts additionally. Now, maybe some of those facts will be exculpatory and it'll change the decision. Maybe some of those facts will strengthen the case and it will make it an even stronger uh, demonstration of obstruction of an official proceeding or conspiracy. So I think the committee felt like what we have evaluated, what we have gathered in, in, our, in our evaluation establishes the violation of those statutes just strictly, even with it not going any further. The department is going to go further and I'm, and I'm looking forward to hearing what they find. But I think unless it's exculpatory, 
there is enough evidence here to prove those criminal offenses beyond a reasonable doubt. So now I'm going to ask you to make predictions, which I'm guessing you may not want to do. <laughs> yeah. Do you um, do you have a view on whether or not the department will come to the same conclusion? You know, I I, I don't. Um, I know that they are moving aggressively. I know that they have now received all of our information, not just the criminal referral that's in the report, but the sort of raw material that informed that referral. They've gotten all of the transcripts. They've gotten all of the documents. So they're going to not just see the sum at the end of the equation, but they're going to see the worksheet that led to the equation being formulated in the first place. And, and look, I was a, I'm was i a veteran of the department, and yeah. I have a trust and confidence in the people that are there to make a good decision. There may be stuff that they get that we haven't seen that, that will take this in a different direction. But I'm telling you, after looking at this, spending my life for 18 months looking hard at this, there's evidence there for a criminal case. And absent something surprising, I think that means there will be a criminal case. We've also, as we've discussed, you have some sense of where the department is and how much information they got and when they've gotten it. And you're a veteran of the department and you understand these cases and how they unfold. Do you have a prediction as to what the timing might be? on a decision to prosecute or not prosecute Donald Trump? That's a lot harder to answer. Yeah. I know they've staffed up right away. I know that uh, that, that special counsel essentially brought in leadership from the, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office that were already working on these cases. So it's not as if they started from scratch. They brought in people that were already looking at these facts. I certainly think that this is the kind of case that needs to move expeditiously. They cannot let this spin out. You know, for a long, long time, we have in two years a presidential election looming that'll be impacted by this. So I think for all those reasons, they'll move quickly, but they'll also move deliberately. I, I don't know that there's any kind of arbitrary internal deadline. They'll put enough bodies on it to move fast. They'll, they'll assess the, the huge amount of information that we got, decide what to take further and make a decision, I, I would think, sometime soon, you know, sometime this year. But I, I don't really have a clear sense as to what their timing is. Going back to something that happened earlier in the process, how, how big a deal did it feel like to the members of the committee to make a criminal referral for contempt with respect to Steve Bannon, for example? Yeah. I mean, that was a crime against Congress. Like, I think there was a, the members of the committee, when people just completely uh, you know, thwart the, the compulsion of a congressional subpoena, you know, we're really bothered by that. And there was a very strong sense with the, all four of the people that we ultimately referred for prosecution that this is a crime against the system, a cr crime against Congress, crime against the sort of larger um, truth-seeking endeavor in which we're all engaged. So they were, I think, very pleased that the department pursued a couple of those, one still pending and the other, as you said, has is, is, uh, resulted in a conviction and and, and a, a sentence. Um disappointed that the department did not pursue the other two that were referred. You know, that reminds me of the question that people have asked a lot. Do you have, based on this experience you've had, a, a view about whether or not Congress should unilaterally and on its own enforce its subpoena power in a way that has real teeth? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think an inherent contempt, giving Congress... Which technically, technically, they have this power, and there was some discussion of whether Congress could literally send a sergeant at arms to go pick somebody up and put him in a jail cell until. Yeah, you, you know, need, first you need to build a jail cell. Well, the I mean, there needs to be, 
yes, there needs to be a mechanism to enforce an inherent contempt. I actually like the fact that there's sort of a, a separation of powers issue or a, a check on potentially abusive Congress to make sure that there's an executive mm-hmm. check on this power. So a referral process to people that are used to assessing whether or not crimes have been committed makes some sense to me. It's frustrating and cumbersome, and it allows witnesses to essentially run out the clock because they know they knew with us that hey, if they just continued to stall, that they would not yeah. could not be legally compelled. But I would be a little troubled, frankly, by Congress all in, in in and of itself having the unilateral authority to to hold somebody indefinitely. And let me before I before I leave that, let me just say that's my personal view. I can't say that that everybody on the sl- I'm speaking for myself yeah. there, not yeah. the members of the committee. So you issued this report, and I should I should let you know that. Uh, I was critical of one thing, and that was the length of the executive summary. Yeah. I got to tell you, Tim, 154 pages. Yeah. Defend yourself. Yeah, it's not really a summary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, again, I, I can't really share with you the the reasons for this or how that came about. I think there was a desire to sort of tell the entire story in a way that was um, shorter than the fulsome report. Um uh, but it was maybe more detailed than you would expect in an executive summary. Um, you could read the executive summary and essentially, you know, f- see the core findings of the rest of the report. It was longer than a lot of people expected, Preet, but I, I can't really go into sort of how we got there. Okay. I will accept that for now. But the ratio of pages in the summary yeah. to the final report was uh, yeah. was not optimal. I understand. <laughs> what, what, what's the, what was the point? Is there any point to the to the final report other than just laying it all out and that's a, a fine mission for for a final report for posterity or was there something else that was hoping to be achieved Yeah like this is the hearing spoke to today the report speaks to history right so I, I think there's stuff in the report and importantly you have to look at the appendices to the report because they're also really important that sort of is the the raw material, the broader context, some of the uh, the the facts that didn't make it in, you know, that sort of were left on the cutting room floor as we were presenting the hearings, but are also really important to the overall story. So it's an 854-page report um, with a 150-some-page executive summary, as you said. That's a lot of information, um, but it was important to put all that together for history, right? We, we were mindful from the beginning that we are really writing here for an audience that will, some of which has not even been born yet, right? This has to be put into a historical context and it will be studied and and used as a reference for for many, many years. And that's very different from the hearings, which were meant to educate the public about our core findings immediately. So yeah, there's a lot in there. It's really pithy. It's really detailed. The footnotes in particular um, are... You know, really cumbersome, frankly, to go no, it, through. It, but it's important. It's well written. It moves yeah. along. Um, you know, just just a bit long, particularly for for people who had to cover it. Yeah, I can and read everything. Yeah, as I said, I think I've said already in this conversation. It's great to have you, in part because I get to ask you questions that people have been asking me for eighteen months. Yeah, and and you are a better source of answers for these questions. Do you think that at the end of the day, the hearings, the committee's work, the report changed a lot of minds? I don't know, Preet. It's a good question. It's one I've thought a lot about. You know, I operated in a somewhat of a cocoon here over the period of this investigation. It's really hard to know outside of the cocoon if it's really making a difference. I hope so. Look, I, I think going into this, I think maybe a third of America 
uh, already had made up its mind about what happened on January 6th and about the former president. Another third similarly had made up its mind, but in a completely opposite direction. But there's a middle third of people in this country that I do think are reachable or are persuadable or maybe didn't have a clear sense as to who was ultimately responsible, what happened, and what uh, ramifications should that entail going forward politically and, and otherwise. And I'm hopeful that enough people in that middle third were influenced, have been influenced by the work that we did. And then I think there's a larger point about history. Uh, democracy is something that is, uh, I kind of personally, you know, to relatively took for granted. Right? We live in a democracy, our systems work, they're durable. That's true, but they rely on the good faith of the people that work within systems. And, and we came close here to having those systems break down. And, and But for the courage of people like Vice President Pence and Brad Raffensperger and Jeffrey Rosen and Rich Donahue at the Department of Justice, I mean, you know, the heroes are, are evident from our report, democracy could have failed. Uh, and that's that that realization alone really ought to wake people up. It ought to make them participate. It ought to make them invest in sort of civic life and make sure that they do their part to protect democracy. That's that's my big takeaway, and I hope enough of America shares that. You know, this is obviously a, a deadly serious, literally a deadly serious undertaking. It took a lot of labor. I'm sure you're exhausted. Were there any light, lighter moments in the process? Oh, there were lots. Any at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah there were. Any you can share with us? Um I will say the the thing about it that I'll always um, feel fortunate to be a part of was the caliber of people that this thing attracted. Right? Like we were able to hire about twenty five lawyers who left law firm partnerships, who left U.S. attorneys' offices, who left other congressional committees to drop what they were doing, often at a huge personal and financial sacrifice, and work as hard as they've ever worked for eighteen months. Sometimes really far from home. And there was a sort of a sense of mission or sense of purpose that came with that. And, and while it was hard and it was grueling, this, the, the sort of esprit de corps or the caliber of the people on the team, I, I it was invaluable. Um, I'm really proud of the people and, and the work that we did uh, is a tribute to them. So there were a ton of light moments when we were, yeah, we, we'd have a witness walk out the door and then... Ten minutes later, we'd see on you know CNN on the the cron underneath you know X it was before the select committee today, and we would look at each other like, you know, how the heck is this stuff such so immediately out there? And then we'd you know I'd listen to people like you and Joyce Vance and my friends, you know, talk about assessing where we're going and what we're doing, and we would spend a lot of time sort of listening to the commentary about what we were doing and. And, uh, you know, sort of joke up, uh, between ourselves as to how right or, or how wrong that was. So there, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Sometimes we were wrong? Sometimes you were, you know, m misguided. <laughs> it's like when you're in a fishbowl, you sort of the other fish in the bowl when, when they're no, looking well, and talking I'm, to each I'm, other. I'm surprised yeah. we're, only, we're only sometimes <laughs> yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, Joyce and I were talking today about our sentiments when Jack Smith was appointed special counsel. Mm -hmm to look at, among other things, not just this material that we've been talking about, but also the Mar-a-Lago documents. Yeah. We did not know, as Merrick Garland knew at that time, that there was a document issue with respect to uh, President Biden right. as well. And in retrospect, you realize as a quote-unquote pundit that you don't have all the facts and all the information, and a lot of it's speculation. Right. And you folks know what is what. And sometimes we find out information later that would have made us better commentators in the moment. Yeah. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you, Preet. And, and amazing insights because you were in the room where it happened, as they say. Tim Hafey, thanks again, my friend. 
Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. It's my pleasure, Preet. Thanks for the invitation. My conversation with Tim Hafey continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I want to share a story that really struck me. It's about British writer and director Hanif Karishi. Among other things, he wrote My Beautiful Laundrette and The Buddha of Suburbia. As reported by the New York Times, the day after Christmas, Karishi had a bad fall while with his family in Rome. He was immediately rushed to the hospital, where he has been ever since, under the care of a team of doctors and his loving family. The fall, for unknown reasons, left him unable to move his arms and legs. What's extraordinary about the story is that he's been documenting his ongoing trauma and recovery on Twitter through dictation, and his tweets have gone viral. He posted a few days after the fall, quote, For a few days I was profoundly traumatized, altered, and unrecognizable to myself. At the moment, it is unclear whether I will ever be able to walk again or whether I'll ever be able to hold a pen, end quote. He solicited any advice, guidance, or recommendations for voice-assisted hardware in his post, and he was met with an overwhelming response. And since arriving at the hospital, he has been writing daily dispatches from his room with the assistance of his son. Written both on Twitter and through a newsletter called The Human Files, Karishi recounts in beautiful detail the ups and downs of his days in recovery, from what he watches, to what he drinks, to his changing relationship with his family members, to what he feels about the blurriness of his future, all in real time. Yesterday, he wrote, My new roommate talked throughout the night in his sleep, of course, in Italian. I can't say he bothered me. You can get used to anything. He recounts watching Breaking Bad with awe at how great a show it is. He details when the nurses come in. He says, They attach me to the machine which lifts me from my bed. For a few moments, I hang in the air like a fly. My limbs dangle down beneath me. Then it places me nicely in a wheelchair. The reader follows him through a day of realizations, that he wants Italian citizenship, that he spent his first hour ever in a gym, that his body is responding to physical therapy. This has been the best day so far, he writes. And finally, he signs off for the day. Quote, In these shitty but sometimes heartening times, your loving writer pal, Hanif. End quote. His story is at once harrowing, and inspiring. The human files are filled with honesty, humor, bravery, and lovely, lovely prose. They allow people who care for him and people who don't even know him to follow and support him on his difficult journey, one that it seems he approaches with grace. And that can be one of the hardest things to do in the face of life-altering hardship. So I'll be following the story, and I hope for him and his family that he makes a full recovery and that one day soon, he will, as he says, go back to using my own precious and beloved instruments. For now, I'll leave you with something he wrote recently that has stayed with me. Quote, I wish what had happened to me had never happened. But there isn't a family on the planet that will evade catastrophe or disaster. But out of these unexpected breaks, there will be new opportunities for creativity. If you were with me tonight, we would each pour a large vodka with a juicy mixer and drink and embrace each other with a little hope. 
that's all for tonight, folks. More tomorrow, more optimism, more jokes. End quote. Amen, sir. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Hafey. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.